when Bhagavan talks about the mind, it is often not clear whether he's referring to the mind or to the ego. So, A, what simply is the difference or distinction between the mind and the ego? B, can they actually be separated? Can they be defined separately? C, is there any point in defining them separately? And D, can you um, indicate or tell us where um, they are most clearly and simply referred to or defined in the teachings, either separately or in relation to each other? Can I, can I just go on for a little bit and quote something? This is yes. sort of developed from this. Um, I reread um, the second chapter of Bhagavan's early work, his um, inquiry into the self in uh, Osborne's uh, collected works. And in that it says, um, the mind is in reality only consciousness because it is pure and transparent by nature. In that pure state, however, it cannot be called mind. The wrong identification of one thing with another is the work of the contaminated mind. That is to say, the pure uncontaminated mind being absolute consciousness, on becoming oblivious of its primary nature, is overpowered by the quality of darkness, tamas, and, and manifests as the physical world. Similarly, overcome by activity, rajas, it identifies itself with the body and appearing in the manifested world as I, mistakes this ego for the reality. My, my understanding of that is that um, given that for most of us, I, I expect probably for all of us, um, given that our, our minds are separated from absolute consciousness, most if not all of the time, then our minds are actually the ego all the time. Is, is that? Uh, yes. Um, firstly, uh, regarding the passage you've just read, that mm -hmm. is from um, a work called Vichara Sangraham. That right. is a work that Bhagavan was Bhagavan res responses to Gambiram Seshia. But that is very different to Nana. In, in, they were both from the same period. But in the case of Nana, Shiv Prakashan Palai came and asked Bhagavan, uh, that the first question he asked Bhagavan was, who am I? And then he asked a series of questions, but were all relevant to that question. So Nana represents Bhagavan's pure teachings. And Bhagavan later rewrote it in the form of an essay in which he refined it further. So Nana is, is, is the pure teachings of Bhagavan. Whereas Bichara Sangraham, I would say about 10% of it, 
is Bhagavan's teachings, and 90% is not Bhagavan's teaching. The reason being, Gambaram Seshya had read various books, mostly in English, on Vedanta and yoga, uh, including uh, Devakananda's books, which at that time were, were, were hot off the press. Raja Yoga, Jnana Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, all the books that uh, Vivekananda had written. He had read these books, but he didn't clearly understand them. And he had read other books, Yoga Vashistha, and so many things he'd read. But he he had difficulty understanding certain passages. So he brought them to Bhagavan and asked Bhagavan to explain. So Bhagavan explained in simple Tamil what those passages implied. So, in effect, Bhagavan was, a lot of what the answers Bhagavan gave him were simply summaries, or uh, he was summarizing the meaning of other texts, of English translations of older texts and of Vivekananda's uh, uh, texts. So, that is why we can't take Vichara Sangraham to be 100% Bhagavan's teaching. There are some very, very useful teachings there, which are Bhagavan's pure teachings, but a lot of it is not really representative of, of Bhagavan's teachings. This passage you, you read, it is Bhagavan's teaching, but Bhagavan wouldn't normally say it in such a way. He wouldn't bring in rajas and tamas and all that. It's a bit of a, a bit more complicated way of explaining it. Yeah. But I can explain what Bhagavan says there. That is, what actually exists, what is real, is only the pure awareness, I am. When that pure awareness is mixed and conflated with adjuncts, that is ego or mind. So when Bhagavan says ego in its pure condition is just consciousness, that means what what. My ego or mind essentially is is just that fundamental awareness I am. But so long as it remains as just I am, we can't call it ego or mind. Um, So that's basically what he's saying there. So the reality is only the fundamental awareness I am. The adjunct mixed awareness, I am Alistair, I am Michael, I am this body, that is ego. Um, Regarding the... uh, Ego, coming back to your main question, which is about the difference between ego and mind. The word ego has a very clear and defined meaning in Bhagavan's teachings. The word mind, we have to understand the sense in which it is used from the context in which it is used. Um, It helps to understand, but in, in its broadest sense, Mind uh, is the totality of all thoughts. And thoughts, when Bhagavan talks about thoughts, he's not just talking about mental chatter. All mental phenomena, all mental impressions are thoughts. So basically, everything is mind. But we can analyze the mind into two compartments. There's the subject and the object. That is, the vast majority of thoughts are objects known by us. The first thought, the thought that knows all other thoughts, is what Bhagavan refers to as the thought called I. That is ego. That is the subject. So we need to understand from the context. When Bhagavan talks about the mind knowing the world, for example, there he's talking about the mind as the subject, so it means ego. But in other contexts, when he uses the word mind, he may be talking about the mind as an object. 
So we need to discriminate and understand from a context in what sense he's using the word mind. But as a general rule, Bhagavan is, because Bhagavan's focus is on ego, which is the root problem, when he uses the term mind, in most cases, he's referring to ego. Um, he makes this clear in verse 18 of, uh, of Upadesha Undia. What he says in verse 18 is, he begins by saying, Enangale manam, thoughts alone are mind. In, in some translations, this is translated as the mind is a bundle of thoughts. That is not, there's no word there for bundle, but it implies that, that is the, the totality of all thoughts is mind. And then in the next sentence, he says, Of all, the thought called I alone is the root. That means of all the thoughts that constitute the mind, the thought called I alone is the root. Why is it the root? Because all other thoughts are objects. Whereas this, the thought called I, namely ego, is the subject. It's that which knows all other thoughts. All other thoughts are jada. They're devoid of awareness. So they are known only as objects. Whereas the thought called I is the only thought that is endowed with awareness. So it is the thought that knows all other thoughts. So no other thought can exist without this first thought I. So he concludes this verse by saying, Yanam manamenal. That means what is called the mind is I. So the implication here is, Though the term mind is often used as a collective term to refer to the totality of all thoughts, all, all mental impressions, all mental phenomena, the root of all these thoughts is only the first thought I. Other thoughts come and go, but so long as there's mind, there's always this first thought I. So what the mind essentially is, is only this first thought I, in other words, ego. Um, we can see a similar thing in um, in Nana, in the fifth paragraph, what Bhagavan says is, um, I mean, there are so many things I could quote, but I can, he begins this paragraph by saying, whatever it is that rises in the body as I, that alone is mind. So here, when he says it rises in the body as I, He's referring to ego. So the ego alone is what is mind, but the ego is just the first thought of the mind. All the other thoughts are just an expansion of that. And then later on in that paragraph, he says, of all the thoughts that appear or arise in the mind, the thought called I alone is the first thought. But the term he uses for first is uh, is muddle. Muddle means the primal, basic, original, uh, first or causal thought. And then he says, only after this arises do other thoughts rise. In other words, no other thought can exist without this first thought. Why? For the simple reason all other thoughts exist only in the view of this first thought I. And then he says, uh, he says the same thing using different terms, only after the first person appears, do second and third persons appear? The first person means ego, this primal thought called I. Second and third persons mean all other thoughts, all other things. Um, without the first person, second and third persons do not exist. 
So that's without this first thought I, no other thoughts exist. No, not, nothing else exists because everything, everything other than our pure, our fundamental awareness I am is a thought. The first thought is this thought I. The thought I means ego, the, the adjunct mixed awareness I am this body. Um, when whenever Bhagavan talks about the thought called I, he's re- he's referring to that is the pure I am is not a thought. It's only when it's mixed and conflated with adjuncts that it becomes a thought. Um, so that is the first thought and the root of all other thoughts. In the second verse of um, of Anma uh, Vidya, uh, Bhagavan says, um, since the thought this the body composed of flesh itself is I, alone is the one thread on which all the various thoughts are strung. Uh, if one goes within thus, what is the place from which I spread out? All thoughts ceasing in the cave of, in the, cave of the heart, Atmanyana alone will shine spontaneously as I am I. So what he means by the thought called I is this false awareness, I am this body. In other words, I am Alistair, or I am Michael, or I am Shalini, or I am whoever. That adjunct mixed awareness, that is the thought called I. And that is the root of all other thoughts. So what the mind essentially is, is only this uh, root thought I. So Bhagavan often uses the term mind to refer to ego. We can see this in, um, in verse 24 of uh, Uludunapadu is where he uh, he um, he defines what is ego. Uh, this is a very very important verse, and here he's equating ego with mind. What he says in verse twenty four of Uludunapadu, he begins by saying, "Jada udal nanenadu," the insentient body does not say I. When he says it does not say I, that's a metaphorical way of saying it's not aware of itself as I. Why is it not aware of itself? Because it's jada, it's not aware. And here what he means by body is not just the physical body, all the five sheaths are jada. And all the five sheaths are, as he says earlier in verse 5 of Uludunapdu, Udul Panchakosa Uru, the body is a form composed of five sheaths. So what he's referring to here is the insentient body in includes all the five sheaths. So the, the, the body does not say I. Uh, Satchit does not rise. In between, one thing, I, rises as the extent of a body. That one thing that I but rises at the extent of a body, since it rises, it's not Satchit. Since it's... Um, since it's uh, aware of itself as I, it's not the body. So it's neither satchit, nor is it the body. It's something that rises in between. It's neither this nor that, but it partakes of the properties of both. And then he goes on to say, idu chit jadagranti. This is chit jadagranti. Chit jadagranti, chit means pure awareness. Jada means what is not aware. And granti means a not. So it is it is the knot formed by the entanglement of chit and jada. Chit is but here means satchit. The jada is referring to the body. So when these two get entangled together as if they were one, this is called chit jada granti. 
but not but not formed by the entanglement of chit and jada. Of course, chit itself never gets entangled. But in the view of ego, we now feel ourselves, I am this body. So the I is the, is the satchit, uh, and the body is what we identify. So we, 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 we are entangling the two together. So he says, this is chit jada granti, bandham means bondage, because we, when we rise as ego, we bind ourselves to this body. So this is body, this is bondage. Jivan means the soul. Uh, Nupame means subtle body. Ahande means ego. Ichamsara, samsaram, this samsara, a mind. So these, these terms, chichadagranti, bondage, jiva, subtle body, ego, Samsara and mind, they all refer only to this I that rises between, which is neither a satchit nor the body, but rises in between. And then in the next verse, verse 25, he describes ego as Uruvatrapeyahande, form, the formless phantom ego. Uh, Uruvatra means devoid of form, that is, it has no form of its own. Pay means uh, it's, you, we usually, it's usually translated as phantom or ghost, but it actually it means an evil spirit. But in effect, it means uh, the, the idea is the body, the ego has no form of its own, and like a ghost, a phantom, it's got no substance of its own. It borrows its substance, namely its existence and awareness, from Satchit, and it borrows its form from a body. So it is neither this nor that. It is something that rises in between the two. So uh, um, that's in the last line he describes it as Uruvatrapeya Handi, but the whole verse is about that. He, what he says at the beginning of the verse is Urupatri um, Undam, grasping form, it comes into existence. Urupatri Nikkum, grasping form, it stands. Urupatri undu mika ongum, grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Uruvitu urupatram, leaving form, it grasps form. Pedinal otum pidicum, if sought, it takes flight. Such is the nature of this formless phantom ego. So it has no form of its own, so it, it cannot come into existence without grasping a form as itself. Because when devoid of form, it's nothing but the pure awareness such it. So it rises as, uh, by grasping a form as itself. But it's not the pure awareness that grasps the form. It's only ego that grasps the form. And ego is not the pure awareness. The very fact that it rises, it comes into existence, means it's not the, the such it, which is ever existent. So grasping form, it comes into existence. That is the first form we grasp is the form of a body, which we take to be ourself. Uh, and grasping form, it stands. Without grasping this form, we cannot endure as ego. So we continue grasping the form. And having grasped the form of this body, we then begin to feed on other form through the five senses of the body. So urupatri undu mika ongum, grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. That is attention to forms, attention to phenomena, to anything other than itself. That is the food on which ego 
survives and it cannot stand for a moment without grasping form. So leaving form, it grasps form. But if instead of trying to grasp anything other than itself, if it tries to grasp itself, that is, if it turns its attention away from other things, back towards itself to see who am I, autumpidicum, it takes flight, it runs away. This, that means if we turn our attention back to ourselves, this ego which had risen by grasping form will subside and dissolve back into its source. So this is the... This is the this is where Bhagavan defines ego, and he equates ego in the previous in verse twenty four with the mind. But ego is, uh, but mind is though, though the term mind is often used in the sense of ego. We also use the term mind to refer to all other thoughts. So we, as I say, we need to understand from the context the sense in which the term mind is used. In fact, the term mind is used in many different senses. Um, in some contexts, we use the term mind to refer to the totality of all thoughts, all mental phenomena. Sometimes we distinguish the mind from the intellect or the will. For example, the, the antakarana, the, the inner instrument, consists of manam, buddhi, chittam, and ahankaram. That's mind, intellect, will, and ego. So, the, in that context, mind means the grosser functions of the mind, the perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, and so on. Subtler than that is the um, intellect. Subtler than the intellect is the will. Subtler than the will is ego. So, um, th these are all just... So, in that context, mind is referring only to the grosser functions of the mind, whereas in other contexts, mind can refer to a whole bundle, all the four uh, together uh, constitute the mind. So, we need to understand from the context. And another sense in which the term mind is used, often we use the term mind in the sense of attention. Put, put your mind on the subject at hand means attend to what you're doing. Don't let your mind wander elsewhere. And mindfulness, what does mindfulness mean? It means attentiveness, being attentive to whatever you're doing. That is being mindful. So mind is often used in the sense of attention. So we need, with the term mind, we need to understand the sense in which it's used from the context in which it's used. Whereas the term ego always refers only to I. It never refers to any other thought. But in, in many contexts, the term mind refers only to ego, his first thought I, but in other contexts it can refer to other thoughts. So the, the most important thing to understand, if we're using the term mind in a broader sense, we have to distinguish the subject from the objects. All other thoughts are objects, they're all phenomena, things known by us, whereas I, ego, the subject, is the knower of all of them. So what the mind essentially is, is that I. So um, I'm just going back to your questions again, Alistair. So the, when you ask what's simply the difference or distinction between them, the, depend, it depends on the sense in which they're used. In, mm. When mind is often used in the sense of ego, in which case there's no difference or distinction between the two. But mind is often used in a broader sense, in which case Ego is the root of the mind. It's the first thought of the mind, the essential thought of the mind, what the mind essentially is. Um, and then you ask, can they be defined separately? 
we can define ego very precisely. Mind we cannot define because the uh, we, we cannot give a single definition to the term mind because the sense in which the term mind is used depends on the context in which it's used. And this applies not only to Bhagavan's teachings, it applies to life more generally, that often we use the mind in the sense of, of the knower. The mind knows the world. There we are using the mind in the sense of ego, the, the knower. Whereas in other contexts, we use the mind in the sense of attention. In other contexts, we use it in the sense of thoughts generally. Um, so the term mind is a very slippery term. We need to understand from a context the sense in which it's used. Yes. Um, and then you ask, is there any point in defining them separately? It's very important to understand what is meant by ego. What is meant by the term mind, as I understand, we can't define it, but we need to understand from the context the sense in which it's being used. And then you say, can you say uh, where they are most clearly and simply referred to in the teachings? Well, I've cited a few verses where Bhagavan very clearly explains. So is, that, is my answer clear, Alistair, or do you have any further questions to ask on this? No, it is, it is clear, actually, but you've given me an awful lot to think about. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll replay this recording. Yes. You've, you've given me a very fulsome answer, and thank you very much. Right. Well, e ego is very easy to understand. Ego is the fundamental awareness I am, mixed and conflated with adjuncts, as I am Alistair. Yeah. That which is aware of itself as I am Alistair, that mm. is ego. Right. The reality of ego is the fundamental awareness I am. Alistair appears in waking and dream. He disappears in sleep. So in sleep, there's no ego. There's only the fundamental awareness I am. Yeah. So understanding the nature of ego is easy. The mind is, is, is more difficult because it's used in different, but the word mind is used in different sense in different contexts. Well, that's what I found so confusing. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, language is confusing. Language can never fully capture. I mean, it's the same. It's not only these words. I mean, there are so many terms we use in day-to-day -day language but have different meaning and different contexts. We, yeah. we have to understand from a context the sense in which a term is used. Yes, of course. Yeah, I get that. Thank you very much, Michael. I've had more than my time. No, 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 you're welcome. This is a very important thing. This is one of the fundamental aspects of Bhagavan's teachings. We need to understand what he's talking about because he, he uses these terms mind and ego so frequently. We need, if, if we don't understand what he's talking about, if we don't understand the terms, we won't be able to understand what he's talking about. That's right. That's right. Um, is there anywhere, have you written about this? Is, have, is there a section in your blog, for example, that I could look at as well? There are probably so many places, but I can't remember. I've written so much on my blog. <laughs> um, uh, it, it will be, I mean, if you go to my blog where I've written an article on, uh, where I've given my translation of Uludunapadu, yeah. the, the verses where Bhagavan talks most about ego are to some extent 23, 24, 25, 26. If you look at both my translation of those verses, you will see underneath each of them, there are numerous links to places where I've discussed those verses. 
So right. in all those places, I will have um, okay. I will have talked about this subject. Michael, that's extremely helpful. Yes. So thank you very much. But, but you need only read one or two because I go on. Yeah, Bhagavan's teachings are so simple. Yeah. I'm I'm constantly repeating what I've said already, and what I've said is just I'm just pointing out what Bhagavan has already told us. So it 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 basically I'm saying the same thing in different ways in different places. Yeah. So but what I've given you now that's a, the summary of uh, of of. Um, of it all. Yes. Okay. Bless you. Thank you very much. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm giving a talk on the mind and the ego um, next Saturday, up the face-to-face -face satsang. Okay, right. And partly because I wanted to understand it properly myself. Okay, yes, yes. It gives <laughs> me a lot to go on. Thank, sometimes, thank it, sometimes explaining these things to others can be very helpful to us in clarifying our own thinking, our own understanding. Absolutely. So sometimes we think we've understood something, but when we're actually put on the spot and asked about it, then we find our, our own thinking is maybe a bit woolly on the subject. So we need to think more carefully. I hope people don't ask too many penetrating questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll try and upload this video soon, so but you have time to, um, to listen to this again. Okay, yeah, I, I'll certainly do that. <laughs> right. Thank you so much, Michael. You're welcome, yes. Um, we have about six questions so far, Michael. So the first one is, um, how how can we love something that we really don't know, namely God? But one thing we always know is God. Because God is that which is shiny in our heart as I am. Because we have risen as ego, we now take ourselves to be this little person. So we think, oh, how can I be God? God must be something other than myself. We, we then form this idea of God as something much bigger and greater than ourselves. But what God actually is, is only that which is shiny in our heart as I am. That is, though it, the, that is actually the infinite whole. So God is the greatest of the greatest. But he's always intimate, known to us most intimately as I am. We, so we always know him. The problem is we don't know him as he is because so long as we're aware of ourselves, so long as we rise as ego, we're aware of ourselves as I am this person. So because we mistake ourselves to be this person, we don't know ourselves as we actually are. But we can never say that we don't know God. Because God is, is the one thing that we always know. The problem is we don't know him as he actually is. To know him as he actually is, we need to know ourselves as we actually are. And we also can't say we don't love God. We all love God. We all love every, it's our very nature to love I am. But the problem is because we have mixed and conflated I am with a particular person, because I, I mistake myself to be Michael, I love Michael so much, but why do I love Michael? Because I take Michael to be I. If I recognize that Michael wasn't I, I would be indifferent to him. Why, why to care about this, this, uh, this fellow? He, Michael is important to me because I wrongly mistake Michael to be I. So, uh, uh, it, if we want to, if we want our love 
for God to increase. Our knowledge of God should increase and it needs to increase. And our knowledge of God will increase only to the extent to which we look within. The more we look within, the more clearly we'll be aware of him shining in our heart as I am. And so our love for him will grow. The next question is, uh, since about five years, um, I'm ever more devoted on the path of Bhagwan's teachings after his, sudden dis- after his sudden appearance into my life. The increasing devotion is drawing me inwardly more and more, seeing the inner guru appear in ever clearer ways. Since about seven years, I'm living as a single man, having had plenty of relationships and affairs in the past. Although longing for someone sometimes, the more prevailing feeling is to stay single. It sometimes seems like a dilemma, either choosing devotion or a worldly relationship. Since I was young, I have considered living in a monastery. I must say I'm grateful to be able to focus on the teaching in the way I'm living now, but still there is this latent desire to have a woman by my side. Could you perhaps say anything about how Bhagwan would react on similar life questions? Our outward life is determined by prarabdha. Um, uh, so if it is our destiny to be married, we will be married. If it's in our destiny to be in a relationship, we'll be in a relationship. Everything in life has its pros and cons. There are definite advantages to being single, but there are also advantages to being uh, in, in, a, in a caring and loving relationship. So what is best for us at each stage of our life is best known to Bhagavan. So he gives accordingly. So whatever be our present circumstances, that is the best circumstances for us at present. If Bhagavan considers it better for us to be in a loving relationship, he will bring that about. So we don't have to... And these things don't happen. We, we, may, we, we fool ourselves when we think, I decide whether I'm going to be in a relationship or not. I decide whether I'm going to marry or not. We may think that we are deciding, but actually it's already decided for us. We may firmly decide I'm not going to marry, but then we will find if it's our destiny to be married, somehow or other, we we will get married. So we we better not uh, dwell too much upon these things. Yes, there are certain benefits in being married, but also certain drawbacks in being married. So which is the best circumstance for us at this particular moment in our life is best known to Bhagavan. So best to just to leave it to him. But Bhagavan said all these things, when Bhagavan was asked about sannyasa, he said, just like marriage comes according to prarabdha, sannyasa comes according to prarabdha. But neither is either is is I not, neither is necessarily a help or a hindrance. That is whatever is most favorable for us, that we are given by prarabdha. So uh, being being a sannyasi doesn't mean it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to help you attain, to attain um to, to follow the spiritual path because the, the, what needs to be renounced, it's easy to renounce outwardly, but the real renunciation is the inward renunciation, the renunciation of ego. Uh, that is the, so surrender is the only true renunciation that we can do in all circumstances. 
That's why Bhagavan often used to say, the grahasta, that means, uh, literally, grahasta literally means a householder. It means a family person. The grahasta, who doesn't think I am a grahasta, is a better sannyasi than the sannyasi who thinks I am a sannyasi. So the, the problem lies in our identity. There are so many different roles, being a sannyasi, being a, a householder, different professional roles, so many different roles we may play in life. The problem lies not in the roles themselves, but in our identification with those roles. By turning within, we are separating ourselves from the person to whom all these roles come. So if Bhagavan considers it to be beneficial for you to be in a, in a relationship, you will be in a relationship. But there's no guaranteeing but when you're in the relationship that it will turn out to be all that you hope it to be. Often relationships can be very, very difficult. So um, we best to leave all these things to him because whether we leave it to him or not, only his will is going to prevail. So if it's his will, we'll be married. If it's his will, we'll, if it's not his will, we'll be single. I hope that adequately answers that question. Uh, the next question, Michael, is how can we continue with the practice of self-attention when there is so much in injustice going on around us? People who are full of themselves, who do not hesitate a moment to treat others like slaves are ruling the world, yet people who are humble are going through the pain. I feel like I need to react. I do not have the power to do anything uh, in any way. Uh, somehow the answer uh, um, that is Arunachal Bhagwan right. uh, are taking care. Um, somehow uh, the answer Arunachal Bhagwan are taking care of everything doesn't console me because when Bhagwan was physically present, he never allowed any injustice to happen in front of him. So do I convince myself that all this is happening by Bhagwan's will? How can we continue to focus on the practice in these situations? Uh so many injustices were happening, even in Bhagavan's presence. The way Murugana was treated, for example, was often unjust. But Bhagavan, whatever happens, during Bhagavan's lifetime, so many great atrocities happened. Bhagavan, Bhagavan was in Tiruvannamalai during the First World War. He was during in Tiruvannamalai in the 1920s and 30s when... Um, Stalin was in power in Russia. Hitler was coming to power in Germany. Um, he was he was there during the Second World War. So so many injustices from time immemorial. I mean, the world will always be full of injustices. It's just the nature of the world. That is, the strong will always exploit the weak, and so on and so forth. So there will always be injustices in the world. We cannot rectify the world. That is, if you try and rectify the world, you may solve one or two problems, but other problems will prop up in their place. So being concerned about the world, I, when people came to Bhagavan with such concerns, he said, he who has created the world knows how to look after it, leave it to him. Um, or for that because their minds, people who are very concerned about the world, their minds are outward going. But his deep, deeper teaching is this world is nothing but a dream. So we, the best help we can do for 
always, we, if we see suffering in a dream, if we see a famine or a pandemic or a war or something in a dream, we see so much suffering as a result. What is the, how can we alleviate all that suffering? The simple way is to wake up from a dream because the dream exists only in our mind. Likewise, this whole world is just a dream. If you want to put an end to all the injustices we see in the world, all we need to do is to wake up. Instead of waking up, if we try and uh, solve the problems in the dream, it, there'll be no end to the problems. We solve one problem, another. even if you could solve one problem, some other problem would come in its place. So we, we need to have discrimination. We need to, we need to be wise about these things. Yes, there are so many injustices in the world. Wars are happening all the time. Um, they, uh, there's huge wealth disparity. There are people who have hundreds of billions of dollars, and there are people who are starving. How? Where is the justice in this world? It's there's so much, and people who have money, they have power, and they are able to to use their power and uh, to limit the power of others. So there's never justice in this world. Um, it's it's futile to try to seek justice in the world. If we know the, what is real, we will know there is no such thing as world and therefore no such thing as justice. So long as the world seems to exist, there will always seem to be injustice. So we need to use our discrimination and um, let's do what is really useful, which is knowing what we actually are, what is within our power, and what is really beneficial is knowing ourselves. So we need to, that's why Bhagavan said, uh, we shouldn't allow our mind to dwell much upon worldly things. Of course, if, if there's something we can do, if someone is hungry and comes and asks us for food, if we've got food, we should give them food. We, we should uh, alleviate pain where we can. That doesn't mean we should go out looking for people to help, but when when the occasion arises, we should do what is appropriate. We should try to alleviate suffering. And most of all, at least, even if we can't do any good in this world, we should at least try to do avoid doing harm. Um, what more can we do outwardly? Inwardly, we can turn our attention within and know the reality of ourselves. If we know the reality of ourselves, we'll know that Ego is unreal, and therefore everything known by ego is unreal. It's all just a dream. And it appears to exist so long as there's a dreamer. If we know ourselves, the dreamer, namely ego, will come to an end, and all dreams will come to an end along with it. I hope that adequately answers that question. Uh, the next question is, uh, how many verses uh, in Akshar Manamalai and how many did Michael complete so far? I assume there would be bi-weekly translations. Uh, does he cover one verse per week or multiple? Uh, I'm not sure if yeah, that's really... I, I, okay, well, uh, the simple answer is I'm doing uh, we, we, two, two meetings a month and my aim is to cover one verse each meeting. And there are 108 verses... So we've now completed 11, so we've got 97 to go. So it's, we, 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 we've got enough to keep us going for a good few years more. No more, Ramanaya. <laughs> That'll keep us out of mischief. 
Yes. <laughs> That's what Bhagavan's teaching is all about, keeping us out of mischief. Can I have a for a while? Um, mm. It says, um, Michael, as you often explain, our actions of mind, speech, and body are driven by two forces. One, we are made to do certain actions in accordance with our destiny. Two, we do certain actions under the sway of our Vishayavasanas. If these two forces are driving our thoughts, uh, logically, the same two forces must also be driving our Vishayavasanas because Vishayavasanas are merely the seed form of all our thoughts. Does such a classification make sense? That is, can we say that certain Vishayavasanas arise up uh, uh, um, can we say that certain Vishayavasanas rise to the surface of our mind in accordance with the destiny and we allow certain other types of Vishayavasanas to, to rise driven by our will? Um, logically, um, this seems to me to be the case that Vishayavasanas are the seeds of our thoughts. Yes, Vishayavasanas are the seeds of our thoughts. They're this, they're, or we can say our thoughts in seed form are the Vishayavasanas. Um, The world appears when we attend to it. We attend to it under the sway of our Vishayavasanas. So Bhagavan has said the whole world is nothing but a projection of our Vishayavasanas. That is what we see as the world is nothing but... The, the world consists of Vishayas. The seeds that give rise to Vishayas are the Vishayavasanas. That is, if we had no inclination to experience Vishayas, Vishayas wouldn't appear. Vishayas means objects or phenomena. So, prarabdha determines what we are to experience in this life. So, what we experience is all vishayas. So, the, the prarabdha is the fruit of actions that we've done in past lives, but not just a random selection of fruit. The, the fruit have been selected and allotted for us to experience in this lifetime by Bhagavan. So, whatever we experience as prarabdha, we can say is Bhagavan's will. Bhagavan sometimes used to say, whether you call, whether you say God's will or prarabdha, it amounts to the same thing, because the, the prarabdha is allotted by God's will. And God allots the prarabdha in such a way that will be most beneficial to us. So, prarabdha is concerned primarily with experience. However, well, it, it's solely with experience. What we experience is prarabdha. Um, however, in order to experience our prarabdha, there are certain actions of mind, speech, and body that we need to do. Those actions we are made to do by God in accordance with our prarabdha. As Bhagavan indicated in the first sentence that he wrote in the note for his mother, in which he says, Abharava prarabdha prakaram adakanavan angangirundu artavipan. That means according to the prarabdha, the destiny of each one, he who is for that means he who has allotted the prarabdha, angangirundu, being there, there, that means being in each place, implying being in the heart of each one of us, artavipan will make us act. So we will be made to do those actions that are necessary in order for us to experience our prarabdha. But that doesn't mean that all, our, all the actions we do by mind, speech, and body are driven, um, actions we're made to do by God. But if we, they're all actions we're made to do by God. 
as Bhagavan said, if God makes us do all the actions, then God has to experience all the fruit. Why do we experience the fruit? Because we are the doer. Because while certain actions, those actions that are necessary for us to experience for Prarabdha, though we are made to do those actions, the vast majority of our actions are actions that are driven, but we are doing under the sway of our vasanas, in other words, under the sway of our own will. We're doing them because we want to do them. And that applies not only to the actions that are not according to destiny, even the actions that are according to destiny, we often, those actions are driven often not only by God's will, but also by our will. That is, uh, in order for us to experience something, supposing it's our, our destiny today to have a, eat a very uh, tasty meal, to cook and eat a very tasty meal. In order to, uh, to experience that, we have to go through the actions of cooking. But we are not cooking. We, we, are, we, we are being made to do that by God's will. But we're also being made to do it by our will because we want to eat that tasty meal. So we cannot distinguish to what extent any particular action is driven by God's will and to what extent it is driven by our will. But the vast majority of of actions, whether or not they're driven by God's will, are driven by our... If they're not driven by God's will, they're driven only by our will. Even if they're driven by God's will, they're in most cases also driven by our will. The, the actions are driven by our will. That means the actions we do under the sway of our vasanas. But our vasanas are the likes and dislikes, the desires and attachments in their seed form. So, uh, we we do actions because we we want to enjoy we want to experience certain things we think that we'll attain happiness by experience certain things so under the, so we allow ourselves to be swayed by both vasanas and we we do the actions whether we experience the things or not is entirely up to prarabdha but we are constantly trying to experience things, but we can experience them only if they're there according to prarabdha. So, vishaya vasanas, there are not two different types of vishaya vasanas. Vishaya vasanas are our inclination to experience things other than ourselves. So long as there is ego, there will be vishaya vasanas. And without vishaya vasanas, there wouldn't be any vishayas because if we have vishayas appear because we attend to them. And we attend to them because we're inclined to attend to them. So which particular vishayas appear is determined by prarabdha to a large extent. That is, whatever, we are, whatever is given to us to experience, that is determined by, by prarabdha. Even those vishayas that are determined by prarabdha, they are a projection of our vishaya vasanas. Um, uh, uh, but we we experience them only to the extent that we allow ourselves to be swayed by that vishaya vasana. So we, we cannot experience any vishayas unless we attend to them. And we attend to them only under the sway of our vishaya vasanas. So these things are very, very... Um, be, be, these things are very intricate and interwoven. We shouldn't try and we we should try and understand the basic principles that Bhagavan has taught us in this regard without 
going into that we can we can start if we start thinking about it if we want to think of questions we can go and ask innumerable questions about this but we are missing the point whatever teachings bhagavan has given us he has given for a reason so we need to understand what is the purpose of the teachings that bhagavan has given why has he gi- why has for example as he taught us about prarabdha because if we understand that whatever we are we we cannot experience anything that we are not destined to experience and we cannot avoid experiencing what we are destined to experience other than by turning our mind within so trying to change anything in our outward life is futile so bhagavan taught us this in order to help us to go within so long as we think our outward life depends on us we will be constantly striving outwardly when we understand it's already predetermined we can we have no freedom to change anything in the outward life in what what happens to us what we the experiences we're on un, to undergo we cannot change that if we understand that we lose interest in trying to change them and we are more interested in turning within likewise what we need to understand about vishaya vasanas vishaya vasanas are our inclination to attend to things other than ourselves attending to things other than ourselves is not a recipe for happiness it's a res- recipe for misery so if we want to be happy we should we should try to attend to ourselves but because our vishaya vasanas are strong we keep on being swayed by them and going outwards so we keep on needing to turn our mind within this is what we need to understand but the vishaya vasanas are the inclination to draw our attention outwards if our attention goes outwards to who who is to blame we are to blame because we've allowed ourselves to be swayed by those vishaya vasanas so we always have the freedom either to be swayed by our vishaya vasanas or not to be swayed by them we are, we have no freedom to change the prarabdha but whether we allow our mind to dwell on this prarabdha to go outwards to experience all these things it's entirely up to us whether so we have the freedom to be swayed by vishaya vasanas or not to be swayed by them because we have the freedom not to be swayed by them we can we can instead be swayed by the sat vasana the inclination to hold to our hold on to ourselves to our own being to sat in other words uh, by holding on to our own being we uh, we um we uh we we refrain from being from allowing ourselves to be swayed by the vishaya vasanas so the vishaya vasanas lose their strength they become weaker and weaker and the love to turn within grows stronger and stronger this is this is the, all we need to understand we need not go into the intricacies of these things so and we shouldn't because if we start thinking about these two things these things too much then we begin to think oh then are there two types of vishaya vasanas those that are projected outside of the prarabdha and the, the other type no what is projected outside of the is the vishayas which are a sprouted form of the vishaya vasana but that is determined by prarabdha the vasanas is our inclination to attend to those things do we attend to them or not that is up to us that's where we have our freedom lies and we should use that freedom wisely by not attending to other things by attending only to ourselves we cannot 
because of the strength of our vishayavasanas and the weakness of our love to turn within, we cannot totally avoid attending to other things. But slowly, slowly, by practice, we need to wean our mind off uh, its inclination to attend to anything other than ourselves. I hope that adequately answers that question. So yes, there are not two does. types of vishayavasanas, it's only one type. Yes, sir, it does. It does. Thanks okay. a lot. Okay, right. Thanks, right. Thanks a lot. Right, right. Next question is, um, what to do if one's most ruthless vasana or thief involves family members, especially with mobile phones, when clinging, when clinging family members text in, incessantly? The sinful ego you talked about wants to push everyone away and turn off the phone so as to be more able to subsist in peace without the constant attack. But grace tells us we are not separate from these clinging others. Pushing them away is also pushing ourselves away. There seems to be an unending tension here. Is there any guidance around this from Bhagavan? That is, the problems do not come from the external world. The pro all the problems come from us. The family members who are texting us are not our Vishayabhasanas. Our, our inclination to attend to that is the Vishay, to attend to anything other than ourselves is the Vishayabhasanas. If, if, so long as we have a body and mind, all sorts of demands are made on us, on our time and on our attention. Um, we, most of us have jobs we need to do in order to earn enough money in order to maintain ourselves and our family. Um, so the, the job demand makes demands on us, the, the family relationships make demands on us, but so many demands are made on us. But none of these are an obstacle to our turning within, because what, whatever demands may be made on us, whatever however much we may be involved in whatever work or whatever activity we are always aware i am so we can be holding on to that uh, fundamental awareness i am even in the midst of activities so just because someone has texted you and uh, is expecting you to reply to them doesn't mean that you shouldn't be holding on to your self-attentiveness. You can be holding on to self-attentiveness while replying to them. Because you don't cease to exist just because you attend to them. You don't cease to be aware of your existence just because you're uh, uh, texting someone. We, are always, we always exist and we always are aware of our existence. We overlook our being and this fundamental awareness of our being because of our interest in other things. So the more we are interested in attending to ourselves, the less we will feel that the external things are disturbing us. And the more we will recognize that the real disturbances are our inclination to allow our mind to go outwards. That is, if, if it's our destiny to to have family members who text us and to expect replies, that's all those, it'll be, it will probably also be, um, we, we, we will probably be, in order for that destiny to be experienced, will be, God will make us do the actions that are necessary. We'll have to reply and we'll have to get receive back. So the, this is all part of the destiny. We shouldn't be concerned about this. We need to, that is, who is texting? 
If someone is texting Michael and Michael has to reply, who is texting? It is Michael. It is the mind, speech and body of this person called Michael who is replying. But the problem lies because I identify myself as I am Michael. So it is it is I who are, who am being troubled by these texts. It is I who have to reply to them. That is where the trouble lies. If we separate ourselves from this person we seem to be by holding on to our being, then the actions that this person is best is made to do in accordance with prarabdha, this person will do anyway. So there's it is not necessary for us to attend to anything other than ourselves. Because whatever actions of mind, speech, and body we are made to do according to destiny, we will be made to do whether we attend to ourselves or not. So the problem doesn't lie in these others. The problem lies in us. But we allow ourselves to get um, to get uh, disturbed by these things, that we get irritated. Oh, why this person is constantly texting me? Why they're bothering me? Why don't they let me be in peace? The truth is, we are always in peace. Peace is ever existing in the center of our heart. If we feel we're not in peace, it's because we're looking outwards. The answer is, look within. Hold on to the peace that is ever shining in your heart as I am, and nothing will disturb you. It's because we, we let go of that and take interest in external things that our peace get, seems to be disturbed. But there, the peace is always there in us. What is disturbed is not the peace, it's the mind that is disturbed. But to the extent to which we hold on to that peace that is ever shining in our heart as I, to that extent the mind will subside. I hope this is an adequate answer to that question. Um, the next one, I'm not sure if it's a question, um, but it's that... Um, says that God is all-knowing, therefore he knows if I will reach self-realization in this life or not. Um, <clears throat> this is very closely related to a misunderstanding that many people have. They think that so, so, since outward experiences are, are, are predetermined by prarabdha, but self-realization is also determined by prarabdha. It is not. It, it, self-realization is entirely depends on our, the use we make of our freedom. Do we use our freedom to attend to other things or to attend to ourselves? Only when we cling to self-realization, to, to ourselves more and more, will we subside and eventually dissolve back into our source. That, that dissolution of ego and its source is what is called self-realization. It's not that I, Michael, attain self-realization. Michael will never attain self-realization because even ego will never attain self-realization. What is called self-realization is the dissolution of ego, the destruction of ego. That is up to us. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, yes, Bhagavan is all-knowing. He knows all there is to know. But what he knows is I am, because that is the only thing that is real. What he's asked us, you know, but, but we too should know just I am. If we know just I am, uh, everything else will disappear, and I am alone will remain. That is what is called self-realization. So we have so many imaginations about what self-realization is. 
but self-realization is something that I am going to gain. No, the loss of I is self-realization. And then what we really are, are the real I, the pure I, alone remains. That is self-realization. Bhagavan gives us a long, long... Um, Bhagavan gives us freedom to go out or to come back within. He's waiting patiently until we come back within. When we come back within, he will then swallow us. Should we go on to the next question, Michael? Yes. Okay. Um, there's something which um, Sanjay has asked, but I'm not. But I think it, you know there was quite a long answer to something similar, which is that are vishaya vasanas also vishayas? <clears throat> vishayas in their seed form are called vishaya vasanas. Vishaya vasanas in their sprouted form are vishayas. Move on to the next question. Um, if we have the freedom to not be swayed by Vishaya Vasanas, is that not an example of impacting or changing our destiny, that is changing our prarabdha? No. The, 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 the prarabdha determines what we are to experience and what we are not to experience. The Vasanas determine what we want to experience or don't want to experience. So what we are destined to experience cannot impact what we want to experience. It might may, maybe my destiny to, to spend my whole life in poverty. That doesn't stop me wanting to be rich. And the fact that I want to be rich doesn't stop me living in poverty. So they're, they're two completely different domains. But the destiny is the fruit of actions that we've done in the past under the sway of our basana. So they are connected, but um, the, the whatever, uh, however we use our freedom now, we are not. We cannot change the destiny. But if we want to avoid experiencing the prarabdha, there's a very simple way. Because the prarabdha, as Bhagavan said, it affects only the outward term mind. If we, are, if we are looking outward, we will experience the prarabdha. Instead of looking outwards, if we look within, then there's no one there to experience the prarabdha because we merge back into our source. So if you want to over, if you want to cease experiencing our prarabdha, we cannot change it. We can simply turn within and cease to be the experiencer of it. Thank you. Can I ask a quick follow-up question, um, yes. Michael and Shalini? Yeah, just on that. That's um, the two two questions. Um, the, the first is about my original question, which was to your example: if we uh, cling to a vishaya vasana, and um, you know, in your example, if we want something, doesn't that impact? Isn't that by definition like kind of impacting our karma or our you know our, our some our, our karma and our Parada karma, so wouldn't that impact our, that, like, for example, if we keep clinging to something or, or act in a certain way out of a like or dislike, yeah. doesn't that impact what comes in our, in our, in our destiny or in our prarabdha? That is, whatever actions we do under the sway of our vishaya vasanas, 
those actions are called agamya. Agamya are the actions that bear fruit. So if you're if you under the sway of your Vishaya Vasanas, if you're doing a particular type of action, that action will have a certain fruit. But you won't experience that fruit in this lifetime. That fruit will go to and be added to the Sanchitta, from where in a future lifetime, God may or may not uh, select it to a lot as part of your prarabdha. So whatever we are now experiencing as prarabdha is the fruit of a gamya that we've done in previous lives, and that a gamya that we did was under the sway of our vasanas. Got it. Okay. And so it's, it's definitely, there's a clear demarcation that the actions that we do uh, f- with our, in our current Vishaya Vasanas that get added to our Agamya Vasanas, they won't bear fruit in this lifetime. I mean, Agamya is not Vasanas, Agamya is karma. Right, Agamya so karma. Is, that, that is what, whatever we do by mind, speech, or body under the sway of our Vishaya Vasanas is Agamya. That Agamya, every action, of, uh, every Agamya has a bears a certain fruit. That fruit I see, is that added to the Sanchitta. Got, got it. But so, that, that but, won't bear fruit this time. No, it won't. won't. The Vasanas okay. are the seeds. The f- fruit right. is the fruit. That is, the, the fr- the, these fruit have, uh, have, have developed from the seeds, which are our Vishaya Vasanas. But Vishaya Vasanas are just inclinations. We are never bound by our inclinations. We may have an inclination to do a certain action, but we have the freedom either to be swayed by that uh, Vasana and to do that action, or to refrain from being swayed by it and not do it. Wow. <coughs> That's why agamya is the action we do uh, according to our will. That is, is, we have the freedom to be to either be swayed by a vasana or not to be swayed by it. And vasanas are rising, as Bhagavan says in the first sentence of the tenth paragraph of Nana. They rise in countless numbers like ocean waves. So vasanas are constantly rising. Everything we experience is a vishaya. Which is of a sprouted form of a Vishaya Vasana. Got it. That was very helpful. Thank so you. All uh, thoughts, one... feelings, perceptions, memories, these are all sprouted uh, Vishaya Vasanas. But they, though Vasanas are constantly sprouting, we have a choice either to follow them, to be, be allow ourselves to be swayed by them, or if we cling to self-attentiveness, as Bhagavan says in the second sentence of the 11th paragraph of Nana, by, that is, the, uh, uh, as and when they rise, then and there, in the very place from which they rise, we should crush them by vichara. That means we should hold on to self-attentiveness and thereby not allow ourselves to be swayed by them. Got it. You... Thank you. You you mentioned that one freedom we have is with our prarabdha to uh, focus on self inquiry and so not um, and so not experience it. When you say, like, if I understood correctly, 
so when we look within and like our focus on self-inquiry and looking at ourselves and you know holding on to the I am and so not is it that the prob does not happening or we're just not experiencing it or adding to it as a in the agamya sense so long uh, like, as there's ego that, that, the prarabdha will be going on if you go to a cinema and you're watching a film you cannot you've got no influence whatsoever on what is appearing on the screen it's already predetermined the film was was made uh, published by the by the and uh, it's now being shown in the in the cinema you cannot change anything that happens in that film but you have the choice either to look at it or not to look at it if you, if it's a, a horror movie or a movie that you don't you feel very uncomfortable watching you can just close your eyes if you don't like the sound you can close your ears so you can shut it out but you can't you can't change what is happening on the screen like that we we that, can shut out the prarabdha by turning our attention within that's like closing our eyes because we're not allowing so our attention that, to go out so is it accurate to interpret that to mean that in in taking ramana maharshi as an example that during his life after a realization he wasn't aware of what he even what he was doing and how he was sorry he wasn't aware of what he was doing or how he was yes but what do we mean by he we when we say he we're referring to the body and mind the body and mind is acting just like our body and mind but what he is is not the body and mind he is the pure awareness i am that's why he wrote a verse in uludunapadanabandham in which he said just like a person sleeping in a bullock cart is not aware whether the cart is moving or standing still or whether the bullocks have been unyoked the jnani who is asleep in the body is is not aware of the activities uh the the uh, or the uh, rest or the nishta of the body so whatever we we say bhagavan lived for 54 years in tiruvannamalai he wrote akshramai he wrote uludunapadu he went round the hill he answered questions he cut the vegetables um this is bhagavan say yes all that's true in your view but not in his view bhagavan is not the person we see he appears to be in our view he appeared in the form of that person in our dream in order to tell us the term within but that's not what he actually is that's why when he was asked what he, his real identity is whether he's an incarnation of of subramania or shiva or which god he's an incarnation of he simply said arunachala ramana is the paramatman but exists blissfully as awareness in the cave of the heart lotus of all jeevas beginning all different jeevas beginning with harry so he is not what he appears to be because we mistake ourselves to be a body he seems to be a body but he is not that body or mind that he seems to be but what was shining through that body or mind is only he that is the clarity and the love and everything that we saw see shining through that body <coughs> that is bhagavan the source of what was 
the manifestations yeah, yeah, that yeah. you mean by coming through. Yeah. Once Bhagavan, they, there was some devotees installed a radio in the old hall. And occasionally, if there was some uh, classical music was being played, some famous singer was singing, they, they would turn on the radio. Um, and it would be generally these would be devotional songs um, in those days. Um, so once when some singer had been singing on the radio, when when the, it came to an end and the radio was switched off, Bhagavan said, see, we listen to this beautiful singing coming from this box. But if we open the box and look inside, we cannot find anyone inside. The source of the singing is coming from elsewhere. Likewise with the uh, body of a jnani, if you open it, you can't find anyone inside. The source from which everything is coming is elsewhere. Where is it? It's in your own heart. As a, it's, it's coming from your own heart, from the I, I, what is shining in you as I am. And on another occasion, someone asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, when you say that you're not aware of any of these things, then how do you answer all our questions? Bhagavan said, from the same source from which the questions arise, from that same source the answers arise. That again he's pointing out to us, he is that which is shiny in us as I. So he is the source, shiny in our heart. Thank you. Right. Right, so Michael, the next question. Yes. How do we stop treating treating ourselves badly and letting others treat us badly, can we escape this pain? Others treating us badly is according to prarabdha. We have no, uh, we have no say over that. Um, as far as treating ourselves badly, allowing our attention to go outwards away from ourselves is treating ourselves badly. Because the more we allow our attention to go outwards, the more we suffer. So if you want to treat ourselves well, we should hold on to self-attentiveness. So that is the solution to all the problems. And if we hold on to self-attentiveness, we will not be concerned with how others treat us. They may praise us or they may blame us. They may um, be kind to us or they may be cruel to us. It doesn't matter. So long as we're holding on to self-attentiveness, nothing will affect us. The problem is our lack of love to hold on to self-attentiveness. So though we experience so much pain when we allow our mind to go outwards, we still let the mind go outwards, thinking that we're going to find some, some pleasure, some happiness. I, ho I hope that adequately answered that question. So the next question, how would Bhagavan read the newspaper without going outward? <laughs> <laughs> Who is reading the newspaper? We see a body and we infer the existence of a mind in that body and we say this body is Bhagavan and this body is reading a newspaper. He is unaffected by all these things. Why did Bhagavan read the newspaper? Because someone gave him a newspaper, he looked at it and he returned it. That's all. It's not for, for Bhagavan is not concerned about all these things. But 
Bhagavan is concerned about one thing and one thing alone, knowing and being what we actually are, namely I am. That's what he came to teach us. Um, but uh, people gave him newspaper. He looked at the newspaper just like anyone else would. If someone, it's not, it's not a, it, it has no significance whatsoever. It, it was our parabda, it was that person's parabda to see Bhagavan reading the newspaper. Exactly, exactly. It's all our dream. As Bhagavan said, the guru is the lion that appears in the elephant's dream. So the elephant is ego. In, in the dream of this uh, elephant ego, this lion Bhagavan has appeared to wake us up. It's so easy to uh, put the question of Bhagavan being a person on Bhagavan. Yes, yes. We yes, slip yes. into it time and again. But, but Bhagavan said it's inevitable. So long as you take yourself to be a person, you we so long as we take ourselves yeah. to be a person, we will inevitably see Bhagavan as a person. Yeah, yeah. But his fundamental teaching is we are not this body. We are just I am. <laughs> 